The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome to the show, everybody. It's had a lot of buzz on social media the past couple of days, and it is a very special show. I've actually been using the word historic to describe it, because certainly in the annals of vegan radio, I don't think a show like this has ever been done. Now, I have wanted for such a long time to invite on two medical doctors in the same specialty, one plant-based one not, and hear where they're both coming from. You know, back in 1990, when I read Dr. Dean Ornish's program for reversing heart disease, in my little layperson's mind, I just thought, well, it's all over now. It's done. We have the definitive information on how humans can eat, and now everybody's going to eat like me and live happily ever after. But that didn't happen. And then, long about 10 years later, we had the China study, great big epidemiological study, which also said, everybody's now going to eat like me. But they didn't. And here we are, 2016. The book I've read most recently is Dr. Greger's How Not to Die, with 100 pages of references in the back about why everybody ought to be eating like me. However... They're not. And guess what? There are other references and other studies and other ways of seeing this. So I really wanted to bring to my listeners the points of view from both sides. And I just had a heck of a time finding a physician who was not vegan who was willing to come on a show called Main Street Vegan until I met a wonderful doctor on Twitter that I'm going to be introducing here in one moment. And I was so excited that when I met that doctor, his specialty happened to be the same specialty as one of my favorite plant-based physicians who's been on the show before. And when they both were able to clear their extremely busy schedules to join together with us today and and talk about their specialties and their ideas and how they see things, I was just tickled pink. Now, I do want to say to all of my vegan listeners, I am not looking at not being vegan. I am a vegan for ethical reasons, and I will be a vegan no matter what. 
But I think that we're hiding our heads in the sand if we act as if there's no other information in the world. And I think it's really important that we have dialogue with people who see things in another way. So that's what we're about today. So let me introduce these two brilliant physicians. Um, we'll start with Dr. Neil Flock, whom I did meet on Twitter. God bless social media. Uh, Dr. Neil Robert Flock is Director of Bariatric Surgery and of Minimally Invasive Surgery at Norwalk Hospital in Connecticut. He went to Tufts University, where he got a degree in art history. Don't you love it when doctors study the humanities first and then go into medicine? And he went to Boston University Medical School, Lots of internship, residency, Beth Israel Medical Center, and he's actually associate clinical professor in surgery right now, University of Vermont School of Medicine, and the um, Frank H. Nodder School of Medicine at this town that I'm going to try to pronounce, Quinnipiac. I think I did it right. Uh, University <laughs> Good <Saint> job. Medical <laughs> Center. Thank you, Bridgeport, <laughs> Connecticut. And his specialty is bariatric surgery. He is a physician who helps obese people, and so is his colleague, whom some of you know, certainly my vegan listeners know from his fabulous book, Proteinaholic, and that is Dr. Garth Davis. He's been on the show before. Dr. Davis is Director of Bariatric Surgery at Memorial Hermann Memorial City Medical Center and the Davis Clinic for Surgical and Medical Waste Man Weight Management. He attended medical school at Baylor College of Medicine, was inducted into the Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Medical Society, and he is certified by the American Board of Surgery and is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery. He used to be on the hit TLC show, Big Medicine, and guess what? When he did that, he and Dr. Flock agreed about diet, and now they don't. And we're going to find out what happened. So welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. Hey, thank, thank you. Well, it's wonderful to have you both here. So first, I just want to get an idea of why you do what you do. Before we get into your dietary ideas, why bariatrics? Let's start with you, Dr. Flock. What brought you to this particular specialty? Well, it's kind of the, the meeting of several interests and I initially I I did a fellowship in minimally invasive surgery uh, at the Mayo Clinic way back in 1998 and I loved minimally invasive surgery now I also had an interest in nutrition because uh, much like uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Davis my father was the chief of medicine uh, and big into uh, gastroenterology and he was the chief of medicine in Norwalk Hospital for 25 years and also very involved in gastroenterology, but not only the medical aspect of uh, gastroenterology, but more of the nutritional aspect of gastroenterology. So he had always considered himself a nutritionist, and he had developed a weight loss program uh, at the hospital where extreme dieting, uh, liquid diets, and then transitioning over to a more natural diet. And in his experience, he was able to get patients to lose, you know, whether it was 100 or 150 pounds. But as they transitioned over to a more normal diet, uh, he saw the weight come back. And there was a lot of frustration. So... What happened in the late 1990s and early 2000 is bariatric surgery really gained a tremendous amount of popularity, and we were starting to see the medical evidence for the benefits of it. And I became interested in it, and I started to perform bariatric surgery. And as I went along, I really began to learn the nutrition. So I was a surgeon before I really you know, honestly had a good grasp of or a better grasp of the nutritional aspects of what people were eating, why they were gaining weight, and actually why they were losing weight with the surgery. And over the past 10, 15, 20 years, I've really learned a lot 
about the nutritional aspects and the effects of the surgery. As I see or saw people lose weight, it really changed my life um, because it changed their life. And if you're a general surgeon, you, you operate on people and you take their gallbladder out or remove their appendix, you meet them, you perform a procedure, and you really don't um, follow them along throughout their life and their life experiences. But to see someone lose weight and change their life and get rid of their diabetes or their high lipid, high lipid problem or their hypertension or their joint problem and to really change their life is a tremendous, tremendous uh, opportunity. And I really fell in love with it. And I began to understand more about and learn about the nutrition. And I really gained an insight as to why the surgery works and why it resolves diabetes and the different aspects of the surgery, the hormonal aspect, the uh, microbiome aspect of it, the nutrition and types of foods involved. Um, So all of these different aspects of it, I began to learn, gain interest, study, and began, began to write a little bit about as well. So that's my love, and that's why I do it. And when I see someone change or when a patient comes into the office and I don't recognize them because I just saw a patient who hadn't been in for about a year and a half, and she's down 187 pounds, and she just looks tremendous and is so happy, that is, that's incredible. There's that nothing is pretty like incredible. that. <laughs> and I, I can't imagine a better job from that aspect. You know, us doctors, we're, we're not having it so easy right now, but that aspect is, is incredible. Oh, that's terrific. And Dr. Davis, how about you? There's lots of specialties out there. Why this one? Why that one? Yeah, I mean, I think Neil kind of captured it, and you'll see this a lot when you go to our bariatric meetings. There's something very exciting about bariatrics, about this idea that we can so vastly change another human being's life uh, and really help them out. The thing that really attracted me was the fact that I started learning that obesity is truly a disease. Um, It it really has to do with genetics and hormones, and um, certainly environment plays a part, but, uh, but surgery helps people overcome their genes in many ways that uh, would have been detrimental to their health. Over time, as I started uh, really getting into the surgery, and as you know, I wrote a book at the time, The Expert's Guide to Weight Loss Surgery. At the time, and like Neil pointed out, you know, most doctors don't do any nutrition uh, going into medicine. And, and I started seeing people coming back gaining weight. It's become a huge problem in the bariatric surgery field. Uh, weight regain and people regaining some of their comorbidities, high blood pressure and and diabetes. And I started looking into why do we become why why is America so obese? Why are we more obese than another country? What are we eating? What do the studies look like? And I really started getting into the science of weight loss uh, as to you know why we gain weight and how we could uh, potentially lose weight without surgery and also make the surgery more effective. Well, this is fascinating to me because my dad was also a physician, and even though he was an ENT, he was very interested in weight loss. And, and this, we're talking back in the 60s when pretty much all that was known was diets and, and pills, but he was very interested. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately from his point of view, he had this fat kid who happened to be me. So I was the guinea pig for a lot of the things that went on. And I've never been as large as some of the patients that you work with in the bariatric surgery field, but I am 60 pounds lighter than I used to be, and I've kept that off for three decades. I had a birthday not long ago, and so now I have lived as long, actually a little bit longer, as a non-binge eater than I lived as a binge eater. And I think it's very cool that both of you are working to help more and more people be able to say that. So I do want to know, we talked about genetics and that, and we'll start with you, Dr. Davis. Okay, we've always had genetics, but now people are big, at least in this country, and some people are huge, maybe bigger than humans have ever been in history. Why? Yeah, I mean, so... 
There's always going to be two parts to an equation. And, you know, there, there, nothing is simple. There's no simple answer to this. But without a doubt, I could say it's genetic, but, you know, our genes aren't changing, and yet we're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, what it basically comes down to, like in medicine, we have something, you know, for example, for cancer, we have what's called a two-hit hypothesis. The first hit is that you got a genetic predisposition. Maybe that genetic predisposition uh, makes you more hungry or has a slower metabolism. Uh, but if you're hungrier and you're not moving as much and you've got a slow metabolism, the second hit is the fact that there's a McDonald's on every corner. Uh, we've got ready, uh, readily available, high-calorie, low-nutrient content food uh, that basically feeds into this genetic defect and creates the obesity. Mm. So, so it so takes two parts of the pie to, for, it to, for it to function. Makes perfect sense. So, Dr. Flock, I would love for you to address that, but I also want to get onto the next question for you as well. What's the problem with being a little bit overweight? I understand when we get up into the 100 plus pounds, that's got to be really bad for so many body systems. But a lot of people are just kind of round and they feel that everybody is after them, that we're all supposed to look like the cover of Vogue. How do we reconcile it all? Well, I, just to, to uh, finish on the last question, and there's so much, you know, for, for, for instance, for Dr. Davis to answer on the causes of obesity, and we could get it, we could do a whole show on that. But one of the things that we're finding, you know, it, not only genetics, genetics can't really explain, you know, a generation in the past 30 or 40 years and how we suddenly become obese, but epigenetics can. You know, there's something that happens to our genes where they become methylated, where a molecule attaches to the gene, and then that gene is passed on to the child, and that child is then more susceptible to becoming obese. And this study has been done um, in, you know, in women who are heavy having children compared to women who are not heavy or have lost weight from bariatric surgery and then having children. So, and they've done these studies in, in mice, actually, is, is what most of them have been done in. So we, we know that epigenetics uh, have, have uh, the ability to, uh, to cause obesity as well. And we don't even get into the environment and pollution and lights and sleep and, and many of the different uh, problems. And one of my interests is the microbiome and the bacteria in our gut. And we know that people who are obese have different bacteria. And we know that when you change your diet, you have different bacteria and how those bacteria affect your metabolism. So all this is being studied now, and we have tremendous amount of evidence. Now, as far as being a little bit overweight, well, you don't want to be too thin. And we know, actually, you know, there was a nice little study that was done with a curve that shows, boy, as you get bigger, you're, you're very unhealthy. But if you're too thin, you're very unhealthy, too. And some of the studies that come out, you know, don't account for some of those unhealthy, thin people really may have a malignancy or may be very, you know, sick for other reasons as well. There may be contributing factors. So there's been a lot coming out recently in the medical literature about, well, you know, maybe it's healthy to be a little bit overweight. And where's the evidence with that? And then they, they took it a step further and said, you know what, Pete, it, 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 you can be healthy and be overweight, or you can be healthy and obe be obese. And really what tends to happen to those people is they are healthy for a while, but they start to develop some of these issues that personally I began to develop when I was 20 or 30 pounds overweight, and that's a high blood sugar or a high lipid level. And then as time goes on, you can develop other problems. You develop atherosclerosis, and you can start to go on medication for your hypertension or develop prediabetes and then... Uh, Diabetes. So there's a spectrum of disease that you can develop over time. And initially you may be healthy, uh, but, but I think that evidence shows that it does catch up with you. So it is important to eat a healthy diet, and, and we can discuss what that is, and we probably agree more than we disagree on what it is. Um, but I think that it's not good to be overweight uh, and certainly not good to be obese. And I don't think that, as time will tell, that being obese is, is a healthy thing. Now, should everybody fit into a, to a bikini? No. We're all different body shapes. 
we shouldn't always look like the models in the books and that that isn't you know perfection or or normal or you know even the most healthy way to look um i don't i i think that there's a healthy range that people uh should be in and they shouldn't you know try to be too thin um i don't think that that is healthy either so so since you did bring up the kind of, of diet that, that's recommended, let's go with you first. Let's find out what you would recommend to someone walking into your office, and then we'll find out what Dr. Davis would recommend. Well, first of all, I have to, you know, we always talk from experience, and then we talk about medical evidence. And the what I have found in my studies, and, and you know, I congratulate Dr. Uh, Davis on his book writing, and I, I just don't know how he finds the time because I've made the attempt, but, you know, it is to write a book while you're practicing bariatric surgery has got to be like building a pyramid in Egypt. It's it's just a tremendous feat and a wonderful world. My family didn't enjoy it. And your your family is not always the happiest when when you do stuff like this. But um, I I must say what what I've learned is, first of all, from eating – or going on a diet as we do. And you, if you just try to eat less calories, I will tell you, it's very difficult to lose. And I did lose about 20 pounds by going away from processed foods, by eliminating simple carbohydrates like bread, which I, I no longer eat. Uh, I no longer eat uh, pasta. And I did a lot of this because I have a daughter who has celiac. So I gave up wheat. And I gave up bread uh, for those reasons, really out of respect to her, because when we eat together. Um, and I really went more towards a plant-based diet with salads, um, a lot of fr- lot of vegetables, not as much fruit. And I probably eat about one or two salads a day. Now, I do believe in eating meats such as chicken and eggs and fish and uh and occasionally beef but i'm not uh, i'm not a believer that beef is a healthy thing um i do feel that we do need protein um and especially the patients that we treat and and yes i'm i'm familiar with the sources of uh vegetarian protein such as legumes and and soy and tofu etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know it it when we talk about the bariatric surgery population, these are patients that, as a doctor, we are putting patients on, I'm trying to tell them to eat 800 to 1,000 calories a day and to eat protein foods first and foods that are filling. And there is pretty good evidence, and we can discuss the evidence, um, uh, that, that protein fills you up a lot better, uh, a lot quicker, uh, with a limited amount of food. So if you do have a, a smaller stomach and you do need to get full quicker or stay full with less calories, protein has an advantage. And whether that protein is egg or fish or chicken, which we do stress, um, you know, the, the, the choices are there of, of some of these limited protein foods. Um, also believe in drinking fluids, plenty of fluids. Uh, and not drinking at the same time. I also believe that fiber is so important because we are symbiotic organisms. It's not just us that we're, when we're looking in the mirror. It's us and our microbiome. And those microbiome have functions. They have metagenomic functions. So they are those the, those bacteria are little factories. They're breaking food down, they're processing it, and they're breaking it down in such a way to feed uh, not only the intestine itself because they feed the large intestine, but they also feed the rest of the body. So we're seeing a lot coming out in the news and on Twitter. You can see the articles about how the microbiome is important for your brain health or your heart or your kidney. And it does. It affects the entire body. So, you know, in summary, I do believe in protein, but I also believe in mostly vegetables and non-processed foods. And and I think that, you know, it, the diets that we put our patients on are limited in calories. 
and we also need to include high fiber foods as well. So, yeah, I mean, so okay. the, the interesting thing, you know, Victoria, is that um, you know you expect like a uh, end all be all battle. Uh, in a debate like this, but most educated physicians are going to come to a fairly similar conclusion about what that diet should be. And so what Neil just said is almost, almost obviously, precisely what I tell my patients. And people think, well, I probably tell my patients to go vegan, which is actually not true. I mean, to me, vegan, the term vegan is an ethical term. I do it, you know, I'm vegan because of ethics and because of the environment. I'm plant-based because of health. Um, years ago, I used to tell people to eat lots of protein. Um, but I started seeing problems with that, and I started really kind of investigating how much protein do we need. As you know from my book, this is a, you know probably about a five-year endeavor of really studying the science on it. What I found is that the cultures that seemed to be the healthiest in the world were eating mainly carbohydrates and not protein, which shocked me because at the time I thought carbs were the devil. Um, and, you know, I started looking at societies like Okinawa where, you know, they ate 85% of their calories from carbs, mainly from potatoes, from a purple potato. And it started really getting into the physiology of, well, how could this be? How come carbs aren't making people overweight and how much protein do we really need? And what I found in my patients was that after the surgery, you know, like Dr. Flock said, you need a lot of vegetables, you need a lot of fiber, which is obviously important, but that's not what my patients were hearing. They were hearing lots of protein, and that was my fault. I was telling them that, lead with your protein, eat protein. problem is they can't fit that much in their pouch, so they ended up, you know, eating the chicken and eating the steak and eating the eggs. And what I found was almost no fiber in their diets. I did a bunch of studies with their long-term uh, food logs, and they were getting no fiber in their diet. Now, there's been a lot on low-carb studies, and there is something, I always say there's something magical in the extremes. Whether you go on a vegan diet or you go on a high-fat, uh, low-carb diet, that, you know, it's in the extremes that we seem to see the benefits to health. But what I find in these really high-protein, high-fat diets, um, if you look at the different studies, I cite, you know, a, a million of them in the book, that there, you, there's one thing that really comes across, and it, and it really really rings true with my patients is that there's increased inflammatory markers with higher protein levels. It's not to say that you don't need protein. Like Dr. Flock said, you definitely need protein. But the question is how much and are we overdoing the protein? Because when you start getting excess animal protein, you get a rise in IGF-1, which can contribute to diabetes and certainly to cancer. You get a rise in acid. The acid could cause sarcopenia muscle breakdown, which is something we see fairly commonly in our patients. Um, you get a change, you know, Dr. Flock mentioned the, the um, bowel bacteria, and the bowel bacteria is unbelievably important. I think all physicians right now are really focusing on the microbiome. And there was a recent study in Nature, uh, which was a really a land-breaking study, and they took people, it was a randomized controlled trial, and they fed them different diets and looked at their microbiome and how their microbiome changed. And a, a vegan diet completely changed the microbiome and brought into uh, existence the type of bacteria that was protective for the bowel as well as good for weight loss. Now, I, kind of alluding to what you said earlier, and my patients get frustrated because when they come to see me, I don't really think of myself as a weight loss doctor. I don't – all I'm concerned about is their health. And so while the change in bacteria may help with their weight loss, and I, I certainly think there's more data leading to that, it certainly helps with their health and preventing inflammation and cancers. So when I counsel a patient, I don't say go vegan or vegetarian. I say I want a lot of fiber. I want a lot of fruit and vegetables. Different than Dr. Flock, I say I want the fruit and vegetables first, the protein second. Um, and then people try to, you know, corner me on exactly how much protein you need. It turns out it's fairly different. But these weight loss surgeries, now we're talking about gastric bypass, gastric sleeve or band. There's another surgery called duodenal switch, and that kind of really, uh, it's a malabsorption procedure where you don't absorb uh, protein properly, and so that's a different scenario. But it, with the gastric bypass and the sleeve and the band, these are not malabsorptive procedures. So in the end, patients basically need the same amount of protein that anybody else needs. They may need slightly higher, obviously, during the perioperative period. But in the end, you know, the the average person probably needs about 46, a uh, woman needs about 46 grams of protein. Uh, and I got my patients, you know, coming to, I, I see a lot of patients that have failed weight loss surgery to come to see me after they failed. And, I mean, they're, you know, they come in and they're like, I don't know why I'm not losing weight. I'm eating 100 grams of protein a day. And I look at their meals as, you know, eggs and bacon and cheeseburgers without the bun, you know, because it's got to be the bun that's the problem. Uh, and, and so it's really changed my view. So I think, 
like Neil said in the beginning, you're going to find that we're probably more in line than we're not. Uh, but I definitely emphasize fiber over protein because it's pretty hard to not get enough protein in your diet. So yeah, we talked about. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go on. No, I think that I think you know the one of the things that we're guilty of, and myself guilty of, probably in the past. And you know, as the son of, you know, I once as a child saw my father go on a television show and tell the interviewer that eating a hamburger was was much less healthy than eating the pencil that he was holding. <laughs> and what he was stressing is the importance of fiber. So I've been taught about fiber my entire life. And suddenly we, when I became a bariatric surgeon, I forgot about fiber. Yeah. And I listened to what everybody else was saying, and they weren't talking about fiber. Because fiber was difficult to eat. It was difficult to chew up, and you really had to chew well after bariatric surgery to get, to get down fibrous foods. And then along came, and I don't want to plug any company, but a company that made a protein bar with a tremendous amount of fiber in it. And I just banged myself on the head, and I said, oh, my gosh. You know, we run into people with a lot of constipation, and that, that's a big problem after bariatric surgery. And I'm like, geez, I, I forgot all about the fiber and how mm-hmm. important that is for the gut. And since then, I've been stressing fiber, uh, whatever source they can get it, uh, for the patient. Now, I don't know if that's resulted in any significant weight loss or change in weight loss. I can tell you that there's, there's only one study out there. I believe the author was Woodward. And uh, I believe John Morton was involved in this study. And what they did is they took two types of uh, bypass patients. So one group, they did a bypass, and they told them a high-protein diet um, or whatever their, whatever their diet was. And the second group, they just added uh, a strain of lactobacillus. And I don't know what the strain is, and I haven't been able to get the actual beyond the abstract of the article. They used, um, I think they used BSL-3. You could get it on Amazon, actually. DSL three, DSL three is one of the only ones that's being yeah. sold now, um, and they're really plugging that one. Okay, so that's yeah. interesting. Those patients lost fifteen percent more weight, um, which is really interesting. So when different bacteria grow uh, in a different environment, you know, it can help you to lose more weight. Now we don't know, and I don't know if studies have been done putting someone on a vegan diet post bariatric surgery versus a protein diet. Uh, or the the classic diet that bariatric surgeons tell their patients. Do you yeah, know of done. any data on that? No, I'm trying to. I'm doing that. Stu- I'm going to be doing that study in the near future. But yeah, it hasn't been done. There's a, the problem with a lot of studies out there, Victoria. Is that it, there's yeah, you've heard the straw man argument. Um, people will do like there's such a lot of studies about low carb versus low fat diets, but they always set up. You know, if you're pro low carb the control group will be really not on a low-fat diet. So there's a lot of studies that say low-carb is better than low-fat, but you look at the low-fat group and they're eating 35% fat, which is not low-fat. Likewise, if, so, if you're pro-low-fat, you set up these studies for the low-carb to fail because they're not truly low-carb. So there, the literature, and as you know, one of my passions is you know going through the literature and vetting out what's nonsense and what's not. But the, the literature is actually, there's not a ton of great, there's a lot of studies, there's not a ton of great studies that try to, to, to vet these, these answers out. And so we're still learning as we go, believe it or not. Nutritional science is actually in its infancy, uh, and uh, we're going to learn a lot more as we go on. You know, I think well, it's, oh, I, I, if I just say, you know, some of these studies are so hard to vet, vet things out, and sometimes people look poorly on the mice, <laughs> but when you have mice studies, and I, I do tweet out some mice studies sometimes, and people will come back and say, well, that's a mouse and it's not a human being. But, you know, you can control what the mouse eats. So it does give you a little more information um, as to exactly what's going on. So, so those studies are a little more helpful. Humans are not as dependable. We cheat. We eat something different. Uh, so it's very hard to control for human beings. Well, while we're talking yeah, there are about like studies. lab studies where they lock people in a lab and you know feed them, and that's the only <laughs> yeah. way we get good studies on them is these metabolic lab studies. That's the only way you're going to get a good human study. 
So are, are you guys familiar with the work of uh, Dr. J- David J.A. Jenkins in Toronto, who's come up with something that he calls eco-Atkins? And I do know there are some vegans who just don't do as well on the standard whole food plant-based diet with lots and lots of carbs. And they actually, at least anecdotally, do better with a little more fat and a little less carbs, even the natural good kind of carbs. So could that be maybe the golden mean? What do you think? There's not going to be a golden. I mean, you're not going to find one. Everyone's going to differ. Um, like you no know, said, he has a daughter who's got celiac disease. There's, I, I'm not big on the gluten intolerance, but certainly there is celiac disease. There's some people that can't tolerate beans. Other people could eat them fine. Everybody's microbiome is going to be different. There's not going to be this is it. This is the one answer to the way I'm supposed to eat in order to be healthy. Um, I, I do think that you can eat. There, there's certainly, it, it also depends on what your goals are and what your health is. So, for instance, if you're trying to lose weight, I, I have found over and over again that fats have been a problem with patients because they're very, very calorie dense. And so oils and fats, I mean, you keep hearing how great coconut oil is and how great olive oil is, and yet I come in with patients and they're having a hard time losing weight, and I look at their diet logs and why don't you try cutting back um, oils, and then they lose weight because the oil's so calorie dense. But that being said, I don't think that fats are necessarily bad for you, and some people actually do quite well on them. And so you can, there's some work out of a guy named Tim Noakes in, in South Africa, and I, I disagree with just about everything Tim Noakes says. Uh, in fact, he's diabetic, and yet he still, you know, is big on a low-carb uh, diet. But he has shown this ability to fat adapt. So our bodies are actually pretty incredible and can adapt to different diets. And I think part of that adaptation probably has to do with changes in microbiome. But you could put someone on an all-fat diet, and pretty soon their body is burning mainly fat for fuel instead of carbs and fat. Um, you could put someone on an all-carbs diet, and their body, like I eat uh, uh, just a hell of a lot of carbs. Uh, and my body has become so efficient with burning carbs. You know, I check all these lab numbers. My insulin resistance is like nothing. Like I'm so sensitive to insulin, so I can eat tons and tons and tons of carbs without a problem. And so your body can adapt to whatever diet you go on, but at the same time, you may naturally feel better on one diet or another. You know, I, uh, <clears throat> I um, when my blood sugar was going up and uh, I was 20 or 25 pounds overweight and I saw my cardiologist and I went over my labs and he said, you got to lose 20 pounds. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And I started giving things up. And, you know, I love popcorn and I gave up popcorn and I gave up pasta and I gave up bread and, you know, my blood sugar came down. So I, you know, and I, and I started eating more plant-based and vegetables and, and, um, so I think we are, there is no magic. The only thing that is accurate is that we are all different. And I believe that the most important person uh, in the next few years will be not the, not the doctor, not the diet, it's the nutritionist. And the nutritionist figuring out what diet is right for what person. And I believe because we're different, our bodies are different, we're different machines, we're different, we're producing burning energy differently. And we don't know all the reasons for that. But there is now some evidence to show that certain diets are better for different people. And it, there, there's not going to be one answer. Uh, Although answer, I would say, and I think you would agree that, uh, that I mean, there's certain, there's certain fundamentals I think are absolutely true. I think everyone's going to tell you yes, you need to fat, eat more fruits and fat. vegetables. And, yeah. And everyone's going to tell you you need to get more fiber. And, I mean, these, I mean the, the bottom line is it's funny in America how we, we go back and forth about these extreme diets. When, but you look at what in 2010 the NHANES data came out with what we eat, and we are mainly eating processed food and animal products, and we're eating a tiny amount of fruit and vegetables. And so I always tell my vision, we just change that. That's all you need to change. Just eat more fruits and vegetables and, and cut back on, on, on your fats and your, your processed carbs. You're, you're, you're going to be healthier, and it's, it's hard to argue with that. The data is pretty strong on that. Yeah, I think we have, we're in the middle of an obesity uh, epidemic, which coincides with an environmental epidemic. Uh, uh, climate change, and, and all these yeah. things are kind of coming together, and they are affecting each other. I think you can't avoid yeah. it. And the processed food is horrendous. It, it really is the, the first thing to cut out. And if you just go back to nature and things that grow from the ground, 
uh, and that are not manipulated and that are not covered with with plastic or, or foreign substances, you're, you're, you're bound to improve. I mean, you, you, I, I don't think it can get worse. <laughs> right. So, Well, that is one of the things, one of my guilty pleasures, which I just wish I didn't have to admit on the air, but I will, is watching my 600-pound life. And I see that the people go to fast food as if it's just ordinary and regular, I mean, right. I go to Chipotle in a pinch, but certainly not if there was something more pleasant available. And yet it just seems that fast food has, has become the norm in America. But speaking of that show, the bariatric physician on that show is so low carb that I heard him tell a woman she couldn't have strawberries. And I looked at this huge woman who couldn't get out of bed, and I'm thinking, her problem does not appear to be strawberries. So <laughs> yeah, I let's mean, it's talk a, about I mean, so that. That guy Victoria is ridiculous. He, he's yeah. totally ridiculous. I, I know him well. You know, it's so funny. Is I had a patient who came to see me, and she was 550 pounds. He also does plastic surgery. Uh, and so she came to see me, and she wanted, we talked about doing weight loss surgery. I said, I first want you to lose weight, and I put her on a, uh, on a plant-based diet. And... Uh, she really took to the plant-based diet, loved it, went on it, and uh, did fantastic. Lost 280 pounds, something like that. And she needed an abdominoplasty. So she went to him to get an abdominoplasty, a plastic surgery. I don't do that. And he told her that she needs to go back to eating more protein and fat. She's like, but I've lost 250 pounds. And he was like, no, you need to do that. I mean, the, the thing people miss about carbs, it, people don't seem to know this, but your body actually has a very hard time turning carbohydrates to fat. Um, in order to turn a carbohydrate to fat called de novo lipogenesis, it takes a lot of energy, and it'll, your body will only do it if all your glycogen stores are completely saturated and you're eating way over your calorie intake. So, I mean, if you're just really pigging down and you're not moving, yeah, you could turn carbs to fat, but the average person isn't turning carbs to fat. The, the insulin resistance is a really big problem. Now, if you go on a low-carb diet, your blood sugars are obviously going to drop because you're not eating carbs, but that doesn't mean that you don't have insulin resistance. Insulin resistance, the, the, the problem with insulin resistance and diabetes as a whole is not carb intake, it's your body's ability to process that carb intake. And it, it, what happens is if you get fat in your muscle cells called intramyocellular fat, that fat will interfere with your uh, muscle cells' ability to make insulin receptors, and then you, if you don't have insulin receptors, you can't put sugar into your muscle cells, and then you get increasing blood sugars and increasing insulin levels, and it's a vicious cycle. So you could do one of two things in that situation. You can cut out the carbs so you don't get the increased uh, sugar, or you can cut out the fats, and there, there's a very strong correlation between uh, animal protein and diabetes, as I talk about. And you cut out those things, you become more insulin sensitive, and then you can do carbs. So there's, there's two ways to look at it, two ways to treat it. Both are effective. I, I wouldn't call the low-carb a cure of diabetes because when they've taken people on low-carb diets and done glucose tolerance tests, they're still diabetic. They're just not eating carbs. But if you take someone like um, Neil Barnard did in a study where he put people on the ADA diet versus vegan diet, the vegan diet uh, had a substantial drop in A1C and uh, were no longer diabetic. I mean, you could give them a glucose tolerance test and they would not show any signs of uh, diabetes. So, so Dr. You know, when we talk about carbs, when we talk about carbs per se, we're you know complex carbs are, right. are healthy. You know right. when they when you take that and I describe carbohydrates and I, I love listening to Robert Lustig because he's you know talking about sugar and sugar and sugar and a tremendous amount of sugar is really bad for you. You, you, you can't. I, I don't think you can argue with that. No. You know, we're not going to argue that, that uh, these saturated, high-fatty oils are, are horrendous for you, and we, we can't argue that, that you know, one boxcar, I call it, which is a sugar molecule, is, you know, it's going to get processed, and it's going to become, you know, if you eat too much of it, it's going to become fat, and, and it's very extremely unhealthy. Now, what if you have two boxcars, and you've got a very simple carbohydrate? Well, that's not very good either. And as you go up and you build a whole long train and you wrap that train in something and make it really tied up with rope around it, now you've got a really, really complex carbohydrate that's difficult to break down. And that's healthy. 
and that's good carbohydrates. So when we talk about carbohydrates, and, and the simplest one being a simple sugar molecule, we go from unhealthy to extremely healthy. And of course, as we were talking about fiber, you know, and and uh, for the for the gut is is extremely important as well. So. You know, complex carbohydrates, I, I am, I, I believe, are extremely healthy, and I and I think simple carbohydrates and especially sugar uh, on that end are really bad and really hurting our society and and our children who are eating so much of it. Yeah, well, how can I mean, we get that? That's that... A, part of the big problem with nutritional science now is this breakdown into talking about carbs versus protein. When everything is this like kind of variation, there's no such thing as just a carb. It's a carb and a fat and a protein, and there's no such thing. You know, one carb is not the same as another carb. And I see these articles that come out that are just ridiculous, like this one that said carbs cause lung cancer. I mean, it was the most ridiculous study in the world. And what <laughs> you find out is that it wasn't carbs. It was because it when they looked at glycemic load, which takes into account, you know, uh, the actual effect of the uh, of how complex the carbohydrate was, it had no effect. It, it basically the the study just showed that people eating a junk food diet had a higher chance of cancer. Uh, and so you really, I, I think we need to go get away from talking about carbs, protein, fat, and go towards talking about whole foods, uh, fruits, vegetables, natural th- foods like that. That is so important. We're looking at something here in New York City. I announced this on the show a couple of weeks ago. A councilwoman named Inez Barron has proposed that restaurants in New York City start posting a carb count. And you could see that uh, a dish that comes with a side of mozzarella fries would have fewer carbs than the dish that came with a side of brown rice. And this could be the law. It's just crazy. Yeah, it's, you know, when you put the politicians in control of medicine, you're, you know, I think we can all agree on this, that, that, that they're going to cause chaos because it's such a simplistic understanding of a problem. Now, if it's something that's a simple solution, like trying to eliminate the sugar in soda or eliminating soda, I think most people would agree that that's a very bad thing. But, you know, a carbohydrate is not, just like a calorie is not a calorie, a carbohydrate's not a carbohydrate. Yeah. It, it and and, and going is. back to, like, the, the epidemiologic studies around the world, people eat the most carbohydrates tend to be the healthier people, and people tend to be the people living the longest life. If you look at America, we actually eat one of the lowest carbohydrate levels in, in the world. We eat one of the highest protein levels in the world. And we've got the shortest longevity, uh, the highest rate of cancer, the highest rate of diabetes, and the highest rate of obesity. So doing something simple like saying uh, we're going to you know, limit carb intake is just ridiculous. It, it shows a lack of understanding of nutritional science. Now, one other point that I agree with that I just wanted to, the inflammation that food causes is so important. Uh, as, as Dr. Davis was saying, you know, some of these food, foods cause severe inflammation. And you do, do not want to eat a lot of inflammatory-inducing foods. Now, we know from studying the bacteria, there's certain bacteria that create more inflammation, and you see more inflammation with diabetes and further diseases. Uh, so inflammatory foods um, are, are really, you know, are really not good. And inflammation seems to be the basis for, of most disease um, or most of these metabolic diseases, I should say. Now, what about psychological issues? I, I know for me, and I was only dealing with 60 pounds, I really needed to get stuff straightened out on the inside before I could stop using food as a drug. And you're working with people, some of whom are, are enormous. So what do they tell you? Is there something more going on than just poor food choices? Yeah, I mean, there, look, um, they did this great study where they did functional MRIs of someone of these people's brains, okay? And, and what they would do is they would take a normal weight person and they would show them food, and their brain would light up like, oh, yeah, there's some food, I want it. And then they would show it to an obese person, and the obese person's brain would light up like crazy. In fact, the obese person's brain looked a lot like a cocaine addict when faced with cocaine. 
And so there's a lot, like a lot of my patients are like, oh, I've got these psychological issues with food, and they're really not psychological issues. It's a physiologic drive to eat. Then you add on that a a habit of how they've eaten all their life, uh, where their parents, you know, fed them this kind of food all their life, and so that food was comfort food to them. And you you start getting to where you're, you're calling things psychological problems, and there really aren't. And then, of course, Neil will attest to this. A lot of our patients do have a lot of psychological issues. We deal with a lot of bipolar and depression and, and things like that. And so I, I don't know how it works in Neil's office, but in my office we have a psychologist uh, who's part of our, our practice. We do uh, consulting with her. We have support groups. Uh, and so we never look, and I think most bariatric surgeons are, are, are like this now, we never look at the weight loss surgery as the end-all, be-all. The weight loss surgery is just one part of a program that involves dietary counseling, exercise counseling, behavioral therapy changes, and psychological uh, work, too. And so it really is a much more complex issue than, oh, someone's crazy and they're just eating too much. Yeah, I I believe that, you know, that there is a strong psychological component to the surgery. And people say, well, it's a psychological problem and not a physical problem. And then if you go to what is psychological, psychology is chemical. Right. So it, it, they're, they're both, you know, working, it's interchangeable. So we have psychological issues because chemically there, there's a signal that is different in our brain that is sending a message that is making us anxious or depressed or, or et cetera, et cetera. So all these things work together. So your hormones... Um, your 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 microbiome, uh, you, you know all these components, your genetics, your epigenetics, everything is interchangeable and affects each other. So yes, I believe it's strongly psychological, but I think the food uh, has you know is interchangeable in in the psychology and what it does chemically to your body. So you know if people could lose weight and still be depressed, people could suddenly lose weight and be happy. People can change their taste or their desire for food after surgery. Uh, so we see all these different different issues. Now, there, there are so many different aspects to psychology. You know, the psychology of the weight loss, the psychology of, you know, the addiction to eating. It's so many different diseases. It's too complex for us as bariatric surgeons, I believe, to handle on our own. And, and I do, too, work with several different uh, psycho- psychiatrists and so, uh, social workers uh, who deal with this and, and our support groups. So I believe there's so many different components, and it's really many different diseases that you're dealing with. Um, I do believe that people become addicted to certain foods, and that's the thing that stands out the most if they have to eat a food and they have to have it. And they can't let go of that particular food. That's the most obvious problem where we'll have to say if you're hooked on a food like you're hooked on alcohol, you got to give it up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. it, it, and it, one, we, I was going to say we, we, we find in certain foods, like, for instance, cheese has something called casomorphines in it. It actually stimulates the brain almost like morphine does, and that's why you know, I see so many patients so addicted to cheese. And we're talking about the, the difference between simple sugars and complex sugars. A simple sugar, that sugar gets in your system so fast and it raises your insulin so quickly that your sugar drops really quickly and that makes you really hungry again. And what are you hungry for? You're hungry for more sugar. So these foods really do uh, create addiction and that's certainly part of the things that we have to deal with in our patients. Yeah, I think that actually cheese is the most addictive food according to a study that I recently read. I would have thought it would be sugar. Uh, but but uh, I think it is cheese. But either way, you know, I, you oh, know, yeah, I happen to be a, be a chocoholic yeah. myself. Uh, I, I learned too. yesterday about uh, uh, people eat, I've never heard of this before, goat cheese with honey on it. So you get both yeah. in one appetizer. Yeah. You get the sugar off the, the cheese, yeah. All good. So just very quickly in, in our last minute, Ethical vegans are very concerned about the environment, about animal rights and slaughterhouses, and about how the American diet, it just cannot feed the entire world. We just don't have enough land or enough water to raise it. So I'm just interested, and actually either one of you can answer this, out there in the general world of medicine, 
are these issues wrestled with or no. are they just things that I focus on because, yeah. you know, I'm me? I mean, they're, they're not. They're, look, when we're in medicine, we're taught such a specific focused view where you're one-on-one with a disease process and you're not even thinking about the whole patient. I remember in like, you know, general surgery residency, you know, we would be like, oh, the colon cancer in room one, not Mrs. Smith in room one. You know, it was like a, such a, a, a focused thing. And, and, and with the, these global issues aren't talked about, and yet they're so important. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that, I, I think that might be changing with the younger generation coming into the medical schools. I know there's a lot of work now with teaching medical school students, um, you know, different views of nutrition and, and tying that in. That. The USDA uh, this year really surprised me by their experts' uh, um, advisory group coming out and saying, you know, we got to start, th- besides plant-based diets being healthy for you, we've got to start thinking about the fact that uh, – while the plant-based diet isn't the only diet that's healthy for you, it may be the most healthy for the environment. Uh, and and so we're starting to hear it, but it's not talked about at our bariatric meetings or anything, that's for sure. Only by me. I, I must say that, you know, one of my biggest frustrations is the lack of education in medical school uh, for students in nutrition. And what we learn is basically how to feed someone through an IV and give them nutrition right. and how many calories we should give them and protein and fat. And it's so uh, so limited, and it's so important because you you know really I, I, I food is 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 so important to our health. I'm trying not to um, you know say we are what we eat, but I have to say it, <laughs> um, and and that is so significant. You got to learn that in school. We don't talk about it enough. Doctors don't communicate about nutrition enough, and I think you know the health of the world is our responsibility, but as physicians, we're so focused on just getting our patients healthy that we don't uh, even address that, and it is important, Mm. and I agree. I think the health of our our world is one of our problems. We're doctors. We take care of people, and the world we live in and our environment is important as well. That's fabulous. Our our time is up. Okay. (laughs) I'm so sorry. We will have to do this again. We can make it an annual event. Thank you both for being both brave and brilliant. I've enjoyed this so much. And um, thanks for helping people lose weight. As somebody who struggled with that, I know it's, it's a tough, tough thing. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting this program. Be back with us next week. In the meantime, God bless you and eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Carpenter was working at a cathedral. He was laying tiles on the highest part of the roof and wasn't making an effort to do a good job. His foreman noticed the poor work and said, you'll have to redo that portion of the roof and do it right. The carpenter asked why. No one's ever going to see these tiles way up here. The foreman answered, God will see them, and God is very particular. Although other people may not see it, The universe is aware of your attitude. So are you. Your attitude affects every aspect of your life. If you change your attitude, you will change your life. Changing your thoughts helps change your actions and can result in positive changes in the world around you. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. The world is full of voices, advertising, television, politics, colleagues, family, and friends. All are too happy to tell us how to live. In all of that noise, it's easy to miss the one voice that matters, your own soul. 
What would happen if you could hear that voice? Imagine the clarity, confidence, and courage that would be yours and the life you could create. Join Janet Connor, best-selling author of Writing Down Your Soul, The Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things. As she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find my God. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify. Spotify.